invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. We're on the second part of this series of true worship where we're looking at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And this is part two, of course, where we're, our Lord is spending uh, quite a bit of time, really, with a woman that in their culture he shouldn't have spent any time with. As a matter of fact, he shouldn't have even spoken to. He shouldn't actually even be in Samaria with how they felt about the Samaritans. They had no dealings with them, as John points out parenthetically in our passage. They, they had no dealings. In other words, they didn't buy or sell. They didn't trade with them, certainly. But they also wouldn't even talk to them. They wouldn't look at them. Um, to them, they considered them as dogs. It was, it was terrible how exclusive uh, they were. And, but that helps the stage for our understanding with regard to why the Samaritan woman is so taken at the fact that this Jewish man who shows up at the well, his name is Jesus, he shows up at the well and he's a man. Of course, we know that he's the God-man, but he shows up showing very much his humanity. As the text says, he's weary, he's tired. This would have been quite a hike from where he was baptizing, you recall, with his disciples. So he does something more than just show up at this well. He asks her for a drink. Now he's really got her attention. How is it that you, a Jew, ask, even speak to me? How, how is it that you would ask me to drink? And we spent the first section of this portion on uh, chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, looking at how masterful Jesus is in his witness of himself to this Samaritan woman, how he is pointing out things that only a prophet would know, somebody who must be set, at least sent from God. And of course, as we get to that verse, she'll say, you, you must be a prophet. I, I take it, I sense, I perceive is actually the word that you are a prophet. You couldn't possibly know unless somebody told you, but you're a Jewish man, so that you, I'm sure, haven't had any dealings up here. How, how could you know this small city of Sychar that I have had, that the man I'm living with is not my husband, and that the five men before that who were my husbands are no longer in my life? The people in town don't even want to talk to me about that. They've ostracized me. That's why I'm alone here in the middle of the day drawing water in the heat of the day because I don't have to see them. They come either early in the morning or at night when it's cool. But he asks her a very personal question. Go and get your husband and bring him back here. Get your husband to come here. I don't have a husband. Well, you've said rightly. I mean, he's really just blowing her mind with his level of understanding. These are very personal things, obviously, as we looked at last week. So the, the topic that he's dealing with in this long discourse with this Samaritan woman, for some 40 verses long, right at about very close to exactly twice as much time as he spent with Nicodemus. And he's the teacher of Israel. You'd think they'd have quite a lengthy discourse to talk about many things. And all he did there was just say, you must be born from above. 
Nicodemus. You must be born again from above. It's, it's not through the religion that you so fastidious, fastidiously participate in. It is actually a work of God in your heart to bring it to life because your heart is dead. It's just amazing that, that the contrast between these two, and I think they're like, they're juxtaposed one right after the other, I think for a very important reason, that's so that we can find the propensity we all have to legalism when in the conversation with Nicodemus, and we can also find some of our testimonies in the Samaritan woman, or at least uh, something that approximates the things that she had gone through in her life. So we can identify on some level with both. So in this section that we're on now with the Samaritan woman, we talked about the first uh, 15 verses. He was really introducing her to the concept of, of living water. You know, if you drink from this well, meaning Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. People that drink from that have to come back daily. But if, if you knew the gift of God and who it was you're speaking to, I would show you a living water that will well up inside of you and will never end. He's got her attention, at least, and so he leaves her, at least in that passage, that portion of verse 15. Well, give me that water. I want some of that water. I don't want to have to keep coming to this well. She's got to be thinking, what are you talking about? What is this gift? There's not been anything free in my life. Everything has cost me. Even my own soul, my character, my reputation. So what is it that you've got that's free? And how is it actually going to cost me in the end? You, can, you can't fault her for being somewhat jaded, can you? She's been searching and searching and searching in those insatiable areas all of her life. If she's had five husbands and now five husbands and now she's living with a man, she can't be, well, most likely not in her 20s, maybe not even in her 30s. Maybe she is. Maybe she got started young. We don't really know. We can speculate. But she's clearly been through quite a bit. And she knows exactly what he's talking about. There's something intriguing about it. But she's still, it's still sort of mysterious to her, this issue of living water and where I'll never have to thirst again. That is very attractive to her. I don't want to have to thirst again. I'm tired of thirsting. And every relationship I've been in leaves me thirsty again and feeling somewhat dirty besides this living water is not only satisfying, it's cleansing. That's got to be in truth. That's got to be something that has got her. See how he draws her in. Remember, he is masterful with his evangelistic work. We love looking at the life of Christ. So it, there's so many uh, points that we can pick up. And I believe that's at least in part why these things are in the eternal record so that we know how to witness to other people. Don't be afraid. He might say of asking the personal questions because it's for personal reasons that he came to die personal reasons that they haven't found answers for. They haven't been satisfied with. They're discouraged. In her case, I think she's downright jaded. I think she's numb. 
with all the things that she's tried to fill this void in her heart, this longing that she doesn't even understand where it comes from and how to satisfy it. And this, the God-man, is about to show her. So let's read verse 19 to 24 in this section where he's talking about worship, what real worship looks like. And this is picked up in verse 19. We've already, well, let's pick it up in verse 16 from last week. Or I'm sorry, actually, um, yeah, let's pick it up in 16. That'll set the context for us. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that we're learning from this remarkable gospel. We've learned so much already about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We learn so much now with these, uh, these interludes with other people that he has, with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and we're learning more about what The living water is we're learning more about what constitutes true worship. And we want to know because we've realized, we've come to realize how important that word is. It sums up the whole of our lives as believers. We're redeemed as a redeemed people to be worshipful people. So help us to broaden and deepen our understanding even still this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just a brief reminder, this idea of worship is, goes all the way back to the garden and creation. We are created as worshipful beings. That's what we are. And you'll remember that worship really comes from the word worth. So it's, a, it's an evaluation. It's evaluation of things relative to each other. Things, some things are more important to you and I. Some things we esteem higher than others. They take the lion's share of our time and our energy and our efforts and surely the, the, the lion's share of our affections and so on. Those are whatever those things are. We know what we suspect what they are with the Samaritan woman, but whatever they are, those are the things that you actually worship. That's, that's a, a, a clear idea. We apprise different things that we value and put them in a, uh, their rightful order. Well, there's some things that we can just not get involved in or not spend our time in, but there's other things that 
have our attention. They, they garner a lot of our thought life. We spend a lot of time thinking about them, and the more we think about certain things that we have an affection for, the deeper that affection grows, and the more of our life gets consumed in that. that whatever that is, whether it's in creation or the Creator Himself, is what you worship. Because we are going to worship. That's fundamental. That's why this word is, is so important. So God's objective in this soul reclamation project that he's on, he's reclaiming souls because he lost those souls that were intended, because they bear his image and likeness, to worship him. To worship him and him alone as supreme. Enjoying other things in life, if they keep their relative perspective in terms of the value that we give them, he should have the greatest share of that. So that's basically what this means. And he's looking, as verse 23 says, for true worshipers. And that's why we are looking at what constitutes true worship. We talked last week about there's forms of acceptable worship and there's forms of unacceptable worship. We looked at the Old Testament examples of what unacceptable worship was. We remember Uzzah just for touching the ark when the ox stumbled, was struck dead on the spot, and we, when we're, we're struck ourselves when we read that, aren't we? I mean, it's, it seems our first rendering in our, in our sense of it is that this seems a little harsh, a little harsh that, you know, I, I didn't speak to the rock. I hit it a couple times because I'm so angry with these people, so I can't go into the promised land. That was Moses. Well, we're learning something about God, aren't we? He's no one to trifle with, but he will be worshipped. And so he saved a remnant for that very purpose. So we are actually redeemed for the purpose of the redemption of worship from the beings that bear his image and likeness, the only beings in all of creation that do. And so we're to esteem him above everything else. So true conversion, then, you could say, if it's real, true conversion always results in true worship. That's axiomatic because that's what he's after. That's what God's after. Willing to send his son to be sacrificed. The son willing to go for that great purpose. That's the major purpose. We like to think the primary purpose is, you know, our salvation because God just wants us to be with him forever. Well, that may be true, but the primary purpose is he will be glorified. He will be glorified. Every knee will bow. You know the rest of it. Every tongue will confess that Jesus saved us. Is that it? <laughs> that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. And that's what he's, that's what he's reclaiming right now in this redemptive enterprise that he's been on for millennia. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the real circumcision. Paul is straightening out the, straightening out the church at Philippi. We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Nicodemus needed to hear that, didn't he? So don't put your confidence in the activities you're involved in, Nicodemus. Don't put your confidence in that, that you're esteemed as the teacher of Israel. You're being misled. Psalm 37, verse 4, it points out that it's actually, if we're worshiping properly, if we have a proper understanding, if our a right heart condition should be a delight to us. That's one characteristic of it. Of it. And in uh, Psalm 37, verse 4, he says, Delight yourself 
yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 43 and verse 4 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. So when we go to the altar, we don't go perhaps like Nicodemus or the rest of them are to be seen of men or to go begrudgingly. I must do these things in a perfunctory way because this is worshiping God. We don't wear specific robes and outfits or phylacteries on our foreheads and wrists. We don't memorize scripture for that purpose. We don't strain at gnats and tithe mint and cumin. We don't do that. We go to the altar to worship, <clears throat> and hopefully we'll, we're clear on where that altar is. Where is the altar that we worship at now? Where is it? In our hearts. In our hearts. We're finding out here in this wonderful passage that worship is not locational, right? It's not brick and mortar. He has a temple now. Where is the temple? The same place. I'm going to go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, my God, my God. Note the possession. I love that. My God. He repeats it. My God. I go with delight. So if I'm missing that, I need to stop and ask myself a question. Just what are you worshiping? This should describe my heart. It doesn't, if it doesn't, something's wrong. And I need to go to that altar of my heart and seek the Lord to find out, Lord, have I misplaced my value system, my evaluation of things on this earth? Has anything surpassed my call to worship you above all other created things? Psalm 104, verse 34, My meditation, may my meditation be pleasing to him. Oh, how I want to please him. Oh, how my heart is filled with delight. It's filled with exceeding joy. This is the language of Scripture when it des describes worship. Psalm, or I'm sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, we ought to have as our constant ambition, and another translation says as our constant aim to be what? Pleasing. But if it's coming from the right place, then that makes sense, doesn't it? Otherwise, if it's begrudging, oh, yeah, i got to please God, I guess. Wait a second. No, don't bother. Sit down and get your heart right. He wants you so taken by him, so overwhelmed by his love and his grace and his mercy. I can't wait to get to the altar. I want to rush to my devotionals. I want to get fall down on my knees. I want to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my God. This is my God. Did I tell you before? He is my God. And he's your God. This is our father. You go tell my brothers when he was risen from the grave. You tell my brothers. Now it's their, his brothers. Yes, it's possessive. He lost something that belongs to him and he wants it back. And he'll get it back. But not begrudgingly. He doesn't have to drag us there, does he? I hope not or we miss something. It's like, no, she's discovering piecemeal. Watch the mastery of his approach with her. She's opening her eyes because she was previously blind, right? Spiritually. She doesn't understand spiritual things yet because she's spiritually blind. We're all born with that particular malady. We're spiritual stillborns. 
May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14. Not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure. Don't go to the church to seek your own pleasure. That was an awesome, awesome experience. How so? (laughs) Well, because I just, you know what? It was just, I felt awesome when I got out of there. The music was awesome. And you run out of superlatives, don't you? Don't go for your own pleasure or talk idly, Isaiah says. Then you shall, if you don't do that, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Go for his sake. Go to find him. And the power that there is once a week to do that collectively cannot be replicated. You shall take delight. You shall. This is my promise, he's saying, in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Doesn't that sound good to you? Especially in the way things are today. Here's where we need to start. We need to, as we're defining what true acceptable worship is for God, and I've got a few points for you here this morning, but the, the place I want to start is we need to recognize something because we talk about experientialism and emotionalism. Listen to me. Jesus appeals to the mind, not the emotions. Emotions are a byproduct. I can write about my delight in the Lord if he's affected how I think about the Lord. You see? Jesus came, gains and keeps his possessions through the mind and the understanding. Satan takes a contrary way. He gains and keeps possession through the emotions and sentimentalities. That's true, isn't it? It's a paraphrase of Matthew Henry read years ago. I thought, boy, this is good stuff. I didn't want to forget it. He appeals to the mind. Why? Because that's what he gave us. Matter of fact, in the vestiges that are remaining as remnants that survived at least to some degree the fall is our reason and our rationality. We're somewhat able to still reason. That's why you can, because as he says through that same prophet Isaiah, come let us Reason together, say the Lord. That's what I'm going to appeal to. I gave you a book, not a movie or a song. I gave you a book with propositional truth in it from cover to cover. Read it. Pray about it. Think about it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Watch what happens. Because then that word, with its transformational efficacy, as Jonathan Edwards used to call it, will transform you, 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? From glory to glory in the Holy Spirit. You've given him something to work with, haven't we? So he appeals to the mind, not the emotions. So I've got things upside down. If I'm in charge of things, let's say, for instance, at, at a church and we're going to really focus on the things that appeal to people's sensory perceptions. What they're hearing and seeing. Smoke and mirrors. Awesome music and powerful. And by the way, if you're going to do all that, don't preach very long. 
You see how upside down that is? If he's appealing to me through the through my mind, because remember the mind, at least it's synonymous with heart in the way the Bible defines it, but I appreciate a little distinction. It helps me understand we think sequentially, so I'm saying that the mind is the gateway to the heart. The mind is the gateway to the heart. So the things I choose to think about and meditate on, logizmai is one of those wonderful Greek terms, categories of terms that has to do with <clears throat> considering something. Think about these things. For now, is another group of Greek words that means to close in on it like a bear trap. Close down on that. As G.K. Chesterton once said, the mind... excuse me, like the mouth, it's meant to close down on something solid. Otherwise, it ends up like a sewer, rejecting nothing. There are certain things, and, and our culture is getting more and more mad at us for saying this, that we're saying, no, this is true. Because God says it's true. We're not picking a fight. We're not running after it. We're not carrying placards, but we're... We're not moving off of that either. I can't. That truth doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And he's made that very clear. So this first point I want to make about true worship that's acceptable to God, it engages the mind and captures the heart. If you gain my thought life, if you get me to think about something long enough, my heart is captured, right? Barbara did that with me about 33 years ago. Couldn't get her out of my mind. Who said amen? You did it? He did? No. Did you, Cameron? Okay. A little too young for that. So Proverbs 5, 6, where we're trying to understand the Samaritan woman, it says of the adulteress in that verse, she does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. That's why Jesus is talking to her. He's using words, specific words, because words carry ideas, and they are the goads that penetrate the heart if they're his words. That's what we use. We use his words to penetrate the heart. So a person like that, or, or any other, has to disregard the image of God in themselves altogether. If they're going to decide to set that apart, they've got to get themselves busy. So you, you meet some people that are trying to fill what she's trying to fill with overmuch busyness. We call them like workaholics or distractions. Oh, where's so-and-so? Oh, he's off doing this. Where is he now? Oh, he's over here doing that. And they stay busy. They stay scheduled, Right. Why? Because they don't want to what? Think. He's getting her to think. Because that's the key. Or they have to use some kind of chemical stimulation because if you want to do some of the things that she's engaged in, and worse, you have to literally bludgeon the image of God in man. You've got to take yourself right out of reality to do the things that some people do. Why? They don't want to 
think they still have the image of God in them. And as I said, some vestige of, of reason and rationale. They have what God's given them. Romans 2.15, their thoughts either excusing or accusing them. That's a conscience. They still have that. We work with that. It's working here with the Samaritan woman and Jesus. She, you will see that as the, as the conversation sort of turns a corner. But on this idea of you have to, you have to purposefully either distract, set aside, or bludgeon the image of God in you in order to ignore the reality of who you are before a God, an almighty God, who wants his image back. And he wants to make it pure and holy because he's pure and holy. And there's no other way that you'll be able to dwell with him other than that. So be holy because he is holy. But that has to come through the mind. They can't allow themselves to think or ponder this in her case and from Proverbs, the adulteress. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's wandering around. It, it's sad because she doesn't allow herself to think. She keeps herself purposely busy. Charles Bridges said about that pro- a proverb, the in- this is great, <laughs> the intrusion of one's serious thought might break the spell and open the way of escape, end quote. <laughs> true statement, that. Absolutely true. Psalm 119.59. Well, listen to this. When I think of on my ways, who wants to stop if, you're, if, you, if you have not reconciled with Christ and you are still unsaved? Who wants to stop and ponder anything? There's a reason that people get drunk at night, as Ephesians 5 says. There's a reason it's at night. It's dark. I can't see much. There's a reason the places they go into are dark. I don't want to see much. There's a reason that the music is turned up loud. Why? I don't want to hear much. I I want things so powerfully overcoming me in a sensory way that I don't have to think about my condition before a holy God. He says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. See, that's the opposite of the adulteress. No, I, I need to think about you, Lord, because then you'll show me what needs to change, how I can turn. Praise God. Ezekiel eighteen twenty seven to 28, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. And here it is, because he considered he considered and turned away it's not just metanoeo it's not just a change of mind that that's true that's true repentance but it's epistrepho it actually turns me literally away from my sin he has called you with a holy calling you are hearing words and so when you hear that you won't hear it if you got the noise turned up in your life or you've got yourself bludgeoned, but if you'll stop and you'll listen, you'll hear him. He's calling. He calls. Who's, who does he call, by the way? Who's he calling to? Say everyone. Everyone. They all are obligated to him, aren't they? But there's the general call and there's the effectual call. There's the ones who hear it. And for some of us, it was a little bit later in life. It wasn't early on. And boy, that call resonates. It's piercing. It is life-changing. 
Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live and he shall not die. The prodigal son, remember this in Luke 15, verse 17? But when he came to himself, what does that mean? He had a moment to think, didn't he? When he was eating the husks down in the pigsty there. Gives you time to think. No music to turn up. No party time. It's daylight, broad daylight. And you know what? I'm looking around and I see a sty full of pigs. What does that mean to a Jewish man, by the way? Not good, yeah? Not, not good. He came to himself and he said, he, see, watch how he reasons. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? His servants, I'm his son. But I perish with hunger. That's enough of this, pigsty. What does it C.S. Lewis says? We, we, we fill around in mud puddles when he's made what? A banquet at the sea? He's saying, look, look at this. Look at this that I've set before you. Come up out of that mud puddle. Come out of that life you made for yourself, saith the Lord. And he is patient, isn't he? And he is good. He's the king, I tell you. First Corinthians fourteen twenty three to 25. If, if therefore the whole church comes together, this is on the issue of tongues. Right? And Paul's trying to bring some sanity to all of that. And he spends, what, chapter 12 through 14 trying to bring some sanity to these things. What a yeoman's work. Watch this. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You're out of your minds. As we've said, Christ is trying to appeal to your minds. He's trying to appeal to the minds of the people that come in and look at all of the babbling, and what are they thinking? You folks are out of your minds. You're out of your minds. He goes on, but if all prophesy, prophesy simply proclaiming the words of God, explaining the words of God. That's what I'm doing right now. If all did that, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. See, because he's using words, the words of God. And when they come in, they hear. If they belong to him, they're going to hear. And it's going to wake them up. It's going to bring that, that washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, right? Their hearts are going to come alive and they're going to go, this is, this is it, this is real, this is right, this is my God. If you would just do that, if you would just use the word of God instead of your own Vain babblings. When they enter, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. There's no amount of babbling, nonsensical babbling, because it doesn't make any sense that's going to do that. It's going to be the very word of God. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God. You mean just by preaching the word? Yeah, just by preaching the word. That's when true revival happens, by the way. Ask Jonathan Edwards when you get to see him. 
It always happens under a robust, right, proper, orthodox preaching of the word. We can't gin that up. We can't counterfeit that. We can't make that happen by whipping up the music and turning down the lights and... Yes. Preaching rhythmically in such a way that it has an ability to reach the heart and get you to move and get you down front so that you can weep and cry. No, it comes through His Word because He's speaking and He doesn't shout. Isn't that what Isaiah says about Him when He comes? He's not going to shout. I could do like Edwards did. Simply read off this page in a very dry and plain way. And if he's working in you, his words will find their place. And like in Edward's time, you'll be gripping the seat in front of you with tears because of the word of God. But I can't do that. I'm too wild, too much of a maniac. Because this is so... Compelling. You will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I see God among you because His Word is being spoken. His Word is being preached. That's the point. And so you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Number two, true worship that is acceptable to God is spiritual and sacrificial. Let me show you that from the word. First of all, we know that it's sacrificial because Jesus blazed the trail there. In other words, to show that true worship is sacrificial, Ephesians 5 and verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and what? sacrifice to God. So there we come to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of that truth, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a sacrifice there. I don't get involved in the things that I used to get involved in, the things that had my heart, the things that I worshipped. Just like the woman at the well. My body belongs to Him. My life belongs to Him. My voice belongs to Him. All that He's given me on this earth belong to Him. We say that, and we need to mean that. It really is His to do with as He pleases. So we're living sacrifices, holy and what? Acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable to God. So we're holy because He is holy. And that's acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's spiritual and it's sacrificial. The Spirit comes alive. And in our text, it says, you need to worship God. God is what? Spirit. He's spirit. That has to come to life. And as he told Nicodemus, only God can make that happen in you. And this will only come through the word of God and by the power of his spirit. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your 
There's that concept again. By the renewal of your mind, not by your emotions, your strong sentimentalities, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. If you're using your mind, you'll be able to understand what the will of God is. I want to know what the will of God is. Well, let's go see. But you're going to have to apply your mind to rightly discern the Word of God, to handle it in a way that doesn't bring shame. Rightly handling the Word of God, you'll know the will of God. This is His revealed will for us. By testing, you may discern that what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah. Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Or 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and or to God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way it will be acceptable to God. Hebrews 9.27 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So it's both spiritual and it's sacrificial. That is true worship that comes through the mind, that illuminates the heart, that sets the heart right before God because of the sacrifice of Christ. Now things make sense to me. Because as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, you're not going to understand them if you don't. They're spiritually what? Discerned or appraised. Yeah. Three, true worship that is acceptable to God often involves suffering. This is the hard part, isn't it? It's often gonna, it often involves suffering. Suffering in different levels, suffering in different stripes, whether it's what Nashville's suffering right now with the shootings, which is horrifying, or it's physical issues, or whatever it is, it involves suffering. But it should encourage us to know that that's part of our sacrifice of worship. It's how am I responding to these things because people are watching, right? I can worship God through this, or I can deny that there's any useful purpose to suffering. I remember when I was a pastor at a large Baptist church and uh, was given the opportunity to preach for the first time. And um, my, the title of my first sermon was Suffering, a Tender Act of Worship. And I got a lot of, I guess what you'd call it today, a lot of hate mail. <laughs> it's like, you know, how can suffering be a tender act of worship? Ask a true believer who suffers, and they'll tell you. Never were they closer to the Lord. Never were they closer. Hebrews 2, 9 to 10. Listen to this. Let's make some sense out of this theologically. But we see him who is Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He suffered as an act of worship to secure our salvation. 
Praise the Lord. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, in other words, he's the only one that's suitable to fulfill that. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous and he's good. And we put him to death. He's the only one that can impute that righteous righteousness. And that turns out to be one of his names. The, he is Jehovah to Sidgenu. He, the Lord is our righteousness. I have none of my own. That's him. And so he did that for all of us. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Romans eight sixteen to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Amazing. Provided, oh, there's a proviso in there. Oh, yeah. Provided we suffer with him. What does Paul call it in another place? The what of his suffering? The fe- there you go. The fellowship of his suffering. We're, we're, we're to, to esteem that as a privilege. Paul did, didn't he? We are to esteem that as a privilege. I suffer with my Christ. What a, what a profound sense of worship I have to offer the things that I suffer. And I am not moved. I will never be moved. The righteous will never be moved. They will be remembered forever, Psalm 112, Right? Never be moved. What does that mean? Nothing's going to shake them off their faith because that righteousness belongs to another and he's giving it to them. It's imputed on them. They're perfectly righteous and holy. They'll never be moved. So they'll be remembered forever. That text says, remembered. He's got, he keeps forgetting us. No, what it means is he's always and ever mindful of you. If you belong, remember, it's an issue of possession. If you belong to him, you're his. You have his undivided attention because you have all of his righteousness. This is remarkable. So it's fitting for him for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory that they should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he, sanct- he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one origin and so we suffer with him. We share the fellowship of his suffering. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you, there it is, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. That's part of true worship. If we get that, it will help us when we're suffering. And some people are suffering badly, deeply, profoundly either from a moment's violence or from or from something protracted that just does not seem to end they're in this sort of indefinite period of fellowshipping with Christ in this suffering never are they closer 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, and if it's, which will would this be? 
say both because we just saw it as a revealed will too. It's his directive will. We're granted suffering with him. And for some folks, it's his decretive will. Why? How do we know? Because they're suffering. We have to make sense out of it or guess what will become. It doesn't take long. Bitter. Yes? Bitter. If you're suffering, you can't find an end to it. Bitterness is right around. It's knocking at your door. It's standing at the threshold. Give me quarter. Let me in. Let me in. This isn't right. This isn't fair. I can't imagine going through what the pastor of Covenant Press is going through. You look at those faces and you think, Lord, we need to pray for him and his mother and the other family members of the victims. I can't imagine myself going through that, but for God's grace. And he could say right back to me, that, that's not your portion right now. You have to trust that you'll have a dispensation of the grace that's needed in your hour of need. Not before and not after. That's what trust, that's what building faith is all about, isn't it? Four. True worship comes from a heart that knows and loves God and desires to honor Him as God. So the revelation of the knowledge of the Holy One, of, of God Himself, provokes worship in us, in other words, the knowledge of Him. I mean, Lord willing, when we, after this, He's going to declare who He is, right? I can't wait to get to that verse. He who speaks with you, I am He. That pronoun, he, isn't in there. Not in the Greek. I am. Ego am I. He's the I am. Oh. Put yourself in her sandals. Because she's already starting to babble a little bit. She knows that, oh, this has turned spiritual and religious. Well, you know, our... our fathers worshiped on this mountain and I know that you say that we ought to worship on the other mountain amazing so it has to come from a heart that's growing being filled with the knowledge of God that's why Peter ends his final epistle second Peter 318 I, I, I sign my name a lot a lot of times on cards with that verse it's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ you do and everything else follows after that contentment peace that delight that exceeding joy love all of it comes with it just grow in your knowledge of him he's revealing himself to the Samaritan woman To the wise men when he was born. Remember Matthew 2.11? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
When Jesus walked on water, Matthew fourteen thirty-two to 33, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Kent Hughes said this, Worship must be orchestrated and conducted with the vision before us of an august, awesome, holy, transcendent God who is to be pleased and above all glorified by our worship. Everything in our corporate worship should flow from this understanding, end quote. If not, that's just going to fall flat. We have to have a right estimation of him. The only way that comes is through growing in our knowledge of him. So verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, yeah, because of the things that she knows or that he knows about her. But in this statement that she has in verse 9, there's an attitudinal shift we can see. How did you know the things that you know? Now, Christians aren't omniscient, but we can fully use the word of God. How does this apply to us? In our evangel, we can use the Word of God because the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed if the Lord is pleased to do so. But it's the same Word. It's the same truths that Jesus is revealing to her. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say then in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's natural for people. As soon as you start talking about anything spiritual or religious, the first thing they're going to think of is, well, here's where we do that. And I know that you do it down there in Jerusalem. So she's referring, of course, she's in Samaria. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, which is just a stone's throw from Sychar, the town she's in. And historical tradition holds that uh, the one who built that temple is Sanballat. Does that name sound familiar? He's one of the two troublemakers in Nehemiah's account when they returned from captivity. Sanballat and Tobiah, remember how much grief they gave the Israelites? And his, what is it, his son-in-law uh, is the first, Jehoiada is the first high priest there. So this is where we do it. But I know you do it down there. Okay, I perceive that you're a prophet, so she's looking for more spiritual guidance, more religious. The, the topic gets religious, but it's still earthbound, isn't it? It's, is it here or there? Maybe you're going to tell me, maybe we need to move. We need to go down there to Jerusalem. Wait a second, I can't. I'm a half-breed to you guys. What am I going to do? These things are just rolling around in her head, but she's intrigued enough to continue to follow, and that's what you do in your witnessing. Thought-provoking questions, thought-provoking statements of truth that just intrigue and draw them further. That's what he does. Nobody does it better. It was, it's natural to us. So remember in Acts 22, verse 10, when Paul is giving his uh, testimony, he's, one of the things he said in his Damascus Road experience when he was converted is, what shall I do, Lord? That's how we think, isn't it? If, if I'm confronted and I'm convicted because I believe it's the Lord that's bringing conviction, I want to know what I can do to make this right. Some acts of penance, I don't know. Go talk to a priest, get that worked out. So many of our fathers and 
praying the rosary. There must be something I have to do. Martin Luther had the, almost said a devil of a time, coming up off of that, didn't he? He's like, I don't get it. Because he's scrubbing the stairs that they used to climb to, to, to become more pious, right? He's scrubbing floors. He's, doing, he's wearing his knees thin, doing all of the doing as, as a Catholic. That's how she's thinking too. We can understand that. One writer said, The first refuge of an awakened conscience is strict adherence to some outward form. That's true, isn't it? It's like, tell me what I got to do. You might even know somebody. They're like, okay, where's your church? Maybe I'll go to your church. And you're thinking, well, there's actually somebody I want you to meet. I'll come to the church and I'll let the Lord take it from there. So that's how we think. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. By the way, this is the only place in all of Scripture that he says this expression. Believe me. Believe me. How is he saying that? Oh, oh, believe me, just like some passing. I think he's saying, believe me. Because isn't it about just believing him? Believe me. He's appealing to her. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You remember what got Stephen stoned to death by the religionists, by the Pharisees? Do you remember what it was? I mean, it's like a 50-51 verse sermon that he's giving, right? And they're just growing in their anger with everything that he says. So right at the end, in verse 48 to 50, he says, The Most High God does not dwell in houses. Look what you've made of that that stone and mortar uh, temple of yours. What did you make of it? You created your own self-imposed system of ethics and, and, and moralistic worship through ritual and ceremony. He goes on. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You're being absurd. Do you think that you can trap me in a particular location? I created The universe. (laughs) Oh, I see why you want to do that because you want to to set up the religion with something that will accommodate your lifestyle. You're worshiping something else, aren't you? No different than the Samaritan woman. You're worshiping yourself. Your notoriety, your being well thought of, the robes, the tassels, all the rest of it. How well you know the Mosaic law and so on. Notice, too, in verse, uh, well, before we get to that, oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 says, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not God. That's what they're doing up there in Mount Gerizim. So, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God. The Father. I think this is answering her, our fathers. Well, this is definite article, the Father. Here's how you're going to worship him. Believe that. So worship isn't a matter of here or there. The Old Old Testament era of the temple is about to come to an end, and he's making that very clear to her, and in 70 AD it was destroyed. 
Malachi 1 has a verse that I think captured the, captures the time and placelessness of worshiping God. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations." You worship, verse 22, what you do not know. We worship what we know. You can't worship what you do not know. And the deeper you, uh, your knowledge of who God is, the deeper your worship will be. Isaiah 2, 3 says, or no, actually 22 says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Well, Isaiah 2 and verse 3, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So it's, this belongs, salvation belongs to the Jews, but they were to share it with other nations, including the Samaritans, and they're obviously not doing that. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He's, isn't this glorious? He's not waiting around for people to chase after Him. He's coming after them. And I have that confidence when I'm witnessing to friends or family members that don't seem to be responding. Because if the hound of heaven is after them, he will get, he will find them and he will capture them. The, the father does away. He searches out. We, we can see in scripture, scripture where he worships. He searches out those who sincerely look for God. Psalm 14, verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there be any who understand, any who seek after God, because Luke 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 24, finally, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Old Testament forms, man-made temples, animal sacrifices, ceremonies, feast days, that's gone now. You're going to worship him in spirit and in truth because God is a living spirit. And in truth, the truth of his word is how you will worship. The only form of acceptable worship comes from a regenerate heart that's been made alive that knows and loves the true God and desires to please Him through obedient living. That's the true worshiper. And the Samaritan woman is about to meet Him. But that's for next time. Let's pray. And I've got a passage before we take communion that hopefully, I believe, ties together all of these principles as we prepare our hearts to take Holy Communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these great truths that are transformational, that show us the way of true, acceptable worship in your eyes. So, Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we are preparing our hearts to partake of Holy Communion. We thank you.
for all of these things. In the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, amen.